Welcome to episode three on the Baby Vitalette Basics uh, introduction. Okay. Um, on this episode, I'm going to be giving an overview of an introduction to investing in property and vitalettes for an income strategy. Okay. It's a big thing that I've focused on early on. Uh, my first 10 properties probably were income producing vitalettes, single lets. Uh, and I'm just going to go through those and talk a little bit on HMOs, but not a great deal on HMOs. Okay, disclaimer: there is increased regulation and there is increased legislation for HMOs, which I do not cover in this episode. Okay, um, so buy to let. The premise is you're buying property to let it to a single occupant, a couple or twos, um, or a family is is typical. And and sharers as HMOs I mentioned come to later. Um, so. The specification for a property is going to depend on your tenant. Again, in the last episode, we discussed getting in touch with agents and appreciating the market and which worker lives in which parts of the town. Okay, so single occupants. Um, these tenants could be blue collar, they could be white collar and or, or semi-professional. And depending on what work they do, they're going to look for a different level of specification or different um level of decoration in a property and different locations okay so a blue collar worker will want more basic specification of housing the fit out doesn't need to be particularly high in uh, in standard but it needs to be good solid neat tidy albeit basic okay they want to be close to amenities they want to have good transport routes um, and that's really the blue collar then we've got semi-professional tenants which will sit in the middle and they'll be looking for accommodation near the town's business district with good links uh, to the business district by bus or train. Okay, Rents will sit in the middle of the road. Um, these properties don't need to have parking but, but because that will be reserved for the top tenants, so white collar tenants. Um, in a particular area, they'll be looking for the highest specification. There will need to be a modern or decorative interior, parking facilities, and the rents achieved will be at the top end. For, for properties, uh, for that style of property. Um, couples, they'll be looking for properties with more than two beds. Personally, I discount two bed properties. I'm always looking for a third bedroom. Just think that with young families, there's the possibility that there is another child on the way. Um, and I think with three beds, you've got more options. You don't want to have a good tenant leaving because you don't have a third bedroom. This is essentially my rationale. Um, Families, are, their consideration is going to be very different to young professionals and individuals. Um, a big factor for them will be safety, safety for their children, space to play. Is there a good sized garden? If not, is there good access to local parks within walking distance? Proximity to schools is also going to be important. Um, sharers, I'll touch on briefly. They're of a more transient nature. Okay, so they're going to be coming and going more. There are more void periods, which is why I have personally aired away from HMOs in the in the early days because I don't want to have four out of five rooms filled because it just doesn't make sense to me. You've got the in increased wear and tear on the property. You've got the increased administration, which I'm not a big fan of admin. I'm not an owl. Um, so houses in multiple occupancy, how do they work? You're renting out the property per room as opposed to on a single AST. So single occupants, couples and families, they're going to pay... £800 for the house, and it will be a three-bed, two-reception house, okay? Sharers, 
are separate, they'll just be renting one room, whereas families might be happy, well, usually they want a property unfurnished. Sharers will want to turn up with a suitcase and have a wardrobe, a bed, a desk and a chair in their room, normally. Okay, so you need to provide for that as a landlord. Um, but how that works is a house that might rent for £800 to a family, three bedrooms and two reception rooms. As a sharer, you may rent it for £400 per room across four rooms. So you've got three bedrooms at 400 each and a, and a reception room, turned bedroom, for a fourth bedroom becomes £1,600 versus 800 that you would have got on an individual AST. Okay, personally, I think that the increased headache of of, of working with, with HMOs is, is unless you've got good, good management in place, potentially not worth it too early on, okay? So upskill first on the baby bitolets and, and become a good manager with those and um, go out and get your bad tenant and a baby bitolet um, and, and learn how to manage the process a bit better before taking that next step and increasing your cash flow with student leds or, or professional sharers, okay? So licensing was introduced for HMOs in 2004. Um, in 2010, councils received powers to restrict areas uh, with, with what is called an Article 4, and that requires a landlord to go through the planning process if they wanted to convert a property in a particular street to a HMO. So this can be this can be applied in different councils, use them differently. Um, if a particular part of town has become very studenty, they may impose an Article 4 to stop more houses in that area becoming studenty. Okay, so the council take control of, of those properties becoming HMOs and you wouldn't be able to operate as them as HMOs. Um, other other councils use it to prevent areas becoming um, HMO and share a territory if they are demographically a lot of lot of family homes. Um, but again it's it just means that you've got to go through the planning process and some investors are prepared to go through the arm wrestle of planning to to secure those that income. Okay. Another quick note on HMOs, you may be required to make a contribution to the bills. Students, there's an exemption for council tax. Students do not pay council tax uh, when renting a property, but you will be in some markets required to pay the utilities, gas, gas, electric and water for them. Um, in other markets, it might be a cap of 100, 200 pounds per month contribution towards the bills. Um, so key considerations for, for when buying a, uh, a income producing property, if it's a single let or if it's a HMO, big, big uh, issue for the tenants is the location. So what tenant class are you buying to and what are you looking to rent it for? What will these people do for work if they are working? If not, what areas are, are they going to be in? There will be pockets of a demographic in different areas. Okay, so get quite specific on the demand that you're going to be catering to and build your property accordingly and, and, and offers. Um, so considerations, location, buying to a specific demand, regulations and council guidance, if it's HMOs, um, and legal paperwork, tenancies, that sort of thing. Student tenants, they usually require a parental guarantee. These sorts of things, they, they you will be guided on um, by local letting agents and estate agents. So, so do touch base with them. Um, HMOs, I, I, I know I've almost slated them on, on this uh, podcast so far today, but I do think they are massively, massively powerful tools. I just fear that 
if you get into them too early, then they can be a little troublesome and, and cause people to worry. Um, from an investment side of, side of things, you are looking at a bigger capital outlay for HMOs. But again, you do get that increased income. So it's a balancing act and what fits right for you. Um, as I mentioned, my first 10, they were the baby buy to lets. HMOs going beyond that, um, it's something to consider once you've got that more stable cash flow and you've got maybe a bit more success with raising private investor finance because you are going to be leaving 10, 20, 30, 40, sorry, 30, 40, 50,000 pounds in a HMO buy to let. Whereas with the single lets, you can maybe get away with leaving £10,000 in a deal and then still get quite a bit of deal flow and, and then not be out of this world deals. Um, so when you're assessing a, a rental property and, and establishing net rent, you're wanting to consider... I I do it on as a pretty rough measure, first off. So I'm looking at rent, less mortgage, less management, less 10% of the gross rent, maybe 20%. Um, but I think 10% is fair, albeit maybe a bit too too conservative. Um, so on rough figures, a property in the northeast, northwest, it's going to rent for £500 a month. It'll have a mortgage of between one and £200 a month, and it'll have an estate agency fee of around £50. So if you take a further £50 for other operating expenses, um, again, as soon as these properties are let, then the utilities will be the responsibility of the tenant. But to get them let, you, you're going to need to pay for insurance, obviously. You're going to need to pay for a tenancy clean after a refurbishment, gas and electric certificates, all that sort of thing. So so there are, there are a few operational expenses each year that you've got to pay for. Um, but roughly, these properties should be earning between two and £300 per month. On current interest rates of course stress test them for five percent or six percent and and get comfortable from that side of things um, but ultimately when you're assessing these 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 rentals um, you don't want to put every contingency and cost under the sun into this affordability calculation because at some point there needs to be a um, a line that's drawn um, because you can't put £100 a month away in a rainy day fund for leaky boiler or anything like that. So ultimately, some risks you're going to have to decide, I'm prepared to bear with that. Um, so be conservative, but again, you've got to draw the line somewhere. Otherwise, you just won't get started. Um, calculating return on investment, you're, you're literally calculating the money that you've had to spend to buy and renovate the property over the, the annual cash flow. Okay, so... If you're earning £3,000 a year from this property after paying your mortgage, management, insurance, gas and electric, tenancy clean, all that sort of thing, and you've spent £20,000 to buy it and renovate it, then your earnings are £3,000 over 20. And I've got a calculator here. 15% a year. Um, once you've bought a property and renovated it, you will expect the value to have increased. You can remortgage at a later point, pull out some equity and increase a 15% return on investment to 30 or 40, hopefully. Um, 
won't get into the detail of the calculations. I think we've, we've gone through that on our YouTube channel. Feel free to check that out. Much better to be done visually because you can follow the numbers and it's a little bit clearer for you. Um, just before signing off on this one, a bit of a short episode, tips for management of a property. Um, just a quick checklist that I constantly remind myself of to make sure that I'm buying in the right places for the right property at the right time. We're buying to tenant demand. We're buying a. Uh, we're trying to become a recommended recommended landlord of universities, hospitals, councils, employers. Um, the professional standard for advertising your properties for rent. Spend fifty quid and get some professional photos done. It changes the, the first impression of the property and it will encourage quicker uptake. Um, financial onboarding and appropriate payments up front. You really want to set the tone for the tenancy. So don't let people move into your property without paying the first month's rent ahead of time, paying the deposit or bond ahead of time before you release the keys because you don't want to be saying, yeah, no worries, pay me next week, pay me next week because it sets a bad tone for the tenancy. The rent payment is due on the date that it's due and it should be paid before then, always. Um, legal onboarding, getting the correct agreements in place. Agents can help with these. Um, you want to revise these documents as you go if points are debated at a later point okay so you might not have a clause the first time that the tenant is responsible for maintaining the garden if you come to the end of the tenancy the tenant leaves and the garden is a complete mess and you've got to pay 300 pounds a month 300 pounds to have a gardener in to sort it out well really if the tenant is responsible for that that can come out of the tenant's deposit so little things like that that you want to be on be on top of um Keeping in contact with your tenants is the best way to manage it. Um, either yourself or your agent, quarterly check-ins at the property, actually inspecting the property, um, maybe monthly calls, hey, how are you? Thanks for paying the rent. Or just a reminder, the rent is due on this date. Hope you're well. Is there anything we need to be aware of? Um, obviously, the relevant insurances to protect yourself and the tenant in the property. Um, HMOs, it's compliant with fire regs and all the rest of it. Um, and professional improvement questioning you know asking yourself how can i improve this property how can i improve the experience for the the person that lives there their home um really looking after these properties there's a, landlords do get a bad rap for, for not looking after properties and it's very easy to slate the management of property um so when you're out there investing try and be one of the good guys and actually provide really really nice housing that you would be proud to live in yourself and then the likelihood of other people looking after those properties it just it compounds okay um so that's it for today quick one i hope that it's been helpful if we do have if any questions have sort of come out of of that talk um again as ever do get in touch with me at dan Fatika on instagram or, or on our youtube um more than happy to to answer individual specific questions okay guys take care thanks for tuning in Bye bye